Welcome to the Visitation Podcast, where we discuss solutions to hot topics surrounding child custody, visitation, and parental alienation. The purpose of this podcast is to offer tips and tricks on how to successfully navigate high-conflict custody battles and discuss how to avoid argumentative situations that can hurt the child. We want to hear from you. If you stay tuned to the end of this podcast, we answer one question from our listeners. To submit your questions, send a message to us on Twitter at VisitationPod. And now, with over five plus years of experience and knowledge in navigating a high conflict custody battle, your host, Nicole Daniel. Nicole Daniel. Hello and thank you for listening. My intention is for this podcast to reach listeners like myself who had no clue at the beginning of their high conflict custody battle on how to proceed. Even if this is the only episode you listen to, I hope you take something away from this that can help your specific situation. So let's get into it. Today's episode is about how the judge determines custody. And I know you're listening to this podcast because you want to know how the judge in your case is going to determine custody, as the title entails. Every person has their own perspective and has their own way of viewing any one particular situation. However, keeping that in mind, every state still does have a set of guidelines or points that a judge pays close attention to when determining who gets custody. Now, around the beginning episodes of this podcast, I had informed you that only after six months, if a child or children stay in a particular state, then that new state can legally become your child's home state. And if custody has not been established, then that new state has jurisdiction. And you know what? I really hope that you're not going this alone, like heading into court, unsuspecting, unprepared, thinking you're just going to go in there and tell your truth and not really know the steps to take. I mean, but if you are, if you haven't allowed fear to stop you and you still aren't too sure on what's to come, but you know you're going to represent yourself and and fight for your children, then I'm super proud of you. I'm proud of your strength. I'm, I'm proud of your resilience, your tenacity, and your determination. So send me an email, especially if you win. Uh, I want to hear how the case went for you. If you did this all by yourself without any help and your own proper person to court or uh, pro se, they say, and you know, this podcast thrives on inspiration of the wins uh, of others and uh, the successful stories. So email me at Ms. Nicole Daniels, that's M-S, Ms. Nicole Daniels at yahoo.com. Visit the website, childvisitationhelp.info. And you can contact me there. I also have a Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Nicole Daniels 888. Before I get into the set of guidelines or the points that judges pay extra close attention to when determining who gets custody, I want to talk about your appearance in court. Now, as you're sitting on the stand, uh, questions are being asked of you. Everyone, including the judge, the lawyers, and other individuals sitting in the public seating area who may be waiting to get their case called, they're all watching you. The judge and the lawyers uh, and the bailiffs, they're all watching. So it can be a very uncomfortable situation. 
And if, if you don't think that's uncomfortable, if you're used to being speaking in public, then that's great. But the lawyers are trained to present evidence that may suggest whether someone is lying or telling the truth. And the judge is experienced enough to deliberate on that evidence to determine if both sides are truthful or which side is more truthful. And then they use these guidelines that I'm going to get to in just a second here to determine who gets custody. I want to say this here, that credibility in court, especially family court, is currency. It is literally the core of your case. How credible are you? And that's why it's important that you answer the interrogatories truthfully. If you don't know what those are or why they're important, that's exactly why I'm here. I remember when I got my interrogatories, I saw what it was, but I had to, I still had to research it. Like, what is this? Why do they need this? Can't I just write a letter to the judge? I I really want you to know that I've been there with that uncertainty and it can be uh, overwhelming. I know. But back to what I'm saying, your appearance in court. Okay, now, according to Rachel Gillette and Samantha Lee, who interviewed Mark Bhutan, a 30-year-old FBI interrogation agent, he explained that there are telltale signs of someone who's lying, whether that be chemical signs, physical signs, or just nervousness. Um, But first, they watch your eyes. If you're uncomfortable when you're asked a question, the eyes may dart back and forth. This is why in the beginning of uh, you being placed on the stand, they ask you basic questions that aren't too, uh, doesn't hold too much pressure. Okay. So when they get to the, the root of the interrogation, if you will, and the harder questions come out, when you have to think of things, you have to remember things and recall certain situations, they take those normal questions, the response to those normal questions, and they compare them to the responses uh, to the to the more difficult questions, so they definitely watch your eyes if they're shifting back and forth uh, really quickly. That can indicate that you are not telling the truth. Rapid blinking: the average person blinks about five or six times a minute, or once every ten to twelve seconds. Booten says, and when stressed, for instance, when someone knows that he's lying, he or she is lying, uh, they may blink five or six times in a rapid succession. So. Uh, number three, often people close their eyes for more than a second at a time when they're lying. And my favorite one is right-handed people look up into the right when they're accessing memory, okay? And up into the left when they're accessing fantasy. So when they're creating a story, right-handed people, right-handed people look up into the left. Uh, and some people look straight when they're trying to recall a visual memory. So in court, as you're answering these questions, both sides are jotting down notes, Um, And this is just a double back to catch and see if you are telling the truth about something as the case moves further, further on. So let's get into the factors. A judge often bases his or her decision on a number of distinct variables that all contribute to what's in the best interest of the child rather than just on one single aspect. The following are typical factors a court takes into account while deciding on custody and visitation. One, if state law allows and the child is older than a specific age, typically between the ages of 12 and 14, the child's preference is taken into consideration. Any particular emotional or medical requirements the child may have. Uh, Three, the bond between the child, their parents, and any other uh, children, any other siblings living in the home. The parents' physical and mental condition, including any indications of abuse of drugs or alcohol. The parents' way of life. 
their financial security, and their capacity to meet the child's fundamental needs. Any history of domestic violence in the household, as well as any indications of harsh punishment, emotional abuse, or sexual or child abuse. Current residence and routine of the child. I think this has to do with like how long the child has been living in one place. That's what it means by like current residence and the routine of the child. What's their day to day routine look like where they currently are, including any daycare facilities, educational institutions and extracurricular activities. The effects of a custody change on the child's mental health and social development. As each family is different, the court will often apply this pertinent, these pertinent considerations to cases on an individual basis. For instance, if a father's main justification for requesting custody is the fact that the mother has relocated 10 times in the previous two years and the child has frequently been transferred from one school to another, the child's academic achievement according to the father, has been impacted by the move, right? And this is true. The mother's lifestyle and stability, the influence of a change on the child, and the child's educational position are only a few examples of the variables that the court may take into account. As promised, when you reach the end of the podcast, there's a answer to a question from one of our listeners by the way thank you for listening we are currently streaming in six countries right now so thank you thank you thank you and this question though that came into my email last week i know i i like twitter so you can definitely uh, use twitter to message us at visitation pod um but this came into the email miss nicole daniels at yahoo.com and she said nicole i need advice on how to start organizing for court I have all the evidence, et cetera, everything I need, comma. I am just trying to figure out the best way to organize it all and whatnot. Okay, so that's what she said. And well, this is the first question that I'm gonna say has has a two-part answer to it. So the first part of the answer is put your evidence in chronological order from start to to finish. This is key when organizing your evidence, whether you're doing it alone or whether you have an attorney. It saves you hundreds of dollars, okay? You can go in there, yes, and submit your evidence in a pile of pictures and and random texts, okay, and say, this is all of my evidence. And then, yeah, you'll be charged thousands of dollars because the attorney has to literally comb through that. But if you have specific points that you want to bring up let's say like for instance with the example of the father uh he's wants to he wants custody because he says that the mother has relocated 10 times in the previous two years okay well he has to show proof that she has relocated and that the the schools have changed how how involved is he in those extracurricular activities for him to have to take on the burden of uh, making up for the movement that the mother uh has done Things like that. And you want to start from the 10 10 times. You want to start from the first time she moved and and keep track of every address that she's had and what school he's gone to and what issues occurred. And you have to, again, chronological order. That's very, 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 very important. Second, what are you trying to prove in court? Like, again, the father is showing that there's an issue with the child's education. That's fine. Okay. Um, If you're trying to prove that your ex is abusive, then you need to have proof of that. Like medical records, such as emergency room visits, police reports, photos of the bruises or whatever you have going on. 
Now, how to present those things are a whole different beast. And I actually offer a course on this called the, the Ultimate Custody Mastery Course. And I don't work with a lot of people at one time so that all my attention can be solely focused on you. So visit the website at www.childvisitationhelp.info and select Mastery Course for more information. And you have reached the end of my podcast. As always, this is Nicole Daniels wishing you the very best in the rest of your week. Be well.